Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, on ideology, cults, oligarchs, and empires, and the way they can divide us up and keep picking our pockets. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. Plenty to talk about, as always. A number of things happening. One of the things that I thought was interesting, you know, as a person who's independent, right? I'm not a member of a, either party. I am a nonpartisan guy. Well, here's the deal. Let me put two things together because I read something, and as a nonpartisan person, as a person who I'm not a member of either party, I think they're both terrible. I respect the rights of people to disagree with me, right? I respect the rights of people to disagree with me. And as I've said, in my opinion, the, the, the two parties to me just look like cults. They look like cults. They're just, it's just weird to me as a person. You know, I was a Democrat my whole life. And then around 2016, around 2016, I took a hike. And they just started looking culty to me, right? And... It's interesting to me to watch the two parties point the finger at each other and tell each other, everybody, like, but the other guy over there is crazy. And then you look at the other party, those guys over there are crazy. And I sit there and I'm like, yeah, they all look kind of crazy to me. But the other day, Hillary Clinton said, let me find this. And this is, gets, to, gets, to, gets to my point, right? So Hillary Clinton said that the, uh, here's what she said, uh, that the, um, the the people, the MAGA people that like Trump, are cult, they're a cult, right? She says, he's only in it for blah, 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 blah. At some point, you know, maybe there needs to be a formal deprogramming of the cult members, but something needs to happen. So I guess people who vote for Donald Trump or some kind of a cult for, as far as Hillary Clinton's concerned, and I don't know, maybe they want to take him to a re-education camp somewhere and formal deprogramming. Oh, boy, the government's going to formally deprogram somebody. Garland Nixon wouldn't be in, po- in favor of that. But so, in Hillary's opinion, the Trump people are cult members. I, and, and again, here's what I say. The same with the MAGA people. With the, I got friends who are Trump supporters. I have friends who are libertarians. I have friends who are members of the Communist Party. I can say that I have friends, oh no, that I disagree with politically. And I respect their right to believe something else. And I don't go around saying, I can't hang around with you because I don't like your fill in the blank. I don't like your views on fill in the blank. Man, if we're going to hang out, if we're going to go fishing, if we're going to talk, if we're going to have fun together, let's do it. I don't vet people. And it's, I find it interesting that Hillary Clinton says, yeah, the MAGA Trump people are a cult. And this is kind of horrifying. At some point, they may need to be formally deprogrammed. When Donna Brazil said that Hillary Clinton, she was the head of the DNC. She was the president of the Democratic National Committee. And she's like, you couldn't penetrate them people, man. That was a cult. I agree with both of them. But. You got a right if you want to be if you want to call it a cult, whatever you want to call it. You got a right to be in that or believe in that. I respect your rights. I don't understand people that and and I and here's what I think to be quite frank. Here's what I what it really comes down to for Garland Nixon. And the people that know me know I view politics through the lens of working class. And I feel like people working class, working poor and poor people should come together and if the super wealthy, if the oligarchs, if the super rich can keep us fighting against each other for whatever, well, you're the wrong race. Oh, no, you're the wrong ideology. No, 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 you're the wrong religion. You live in the wrong part of the which, uh, country. You wear your clothes wrong. You wear your hair wrong. You're too young. You're too old. You're too short. You're too white. You're too black. Whatever the case. Right. If they can keep us fighting amongst each other, we won't be looking at them. We won't come together. And the one thing that the oligarchs fear the most, the one thing that the people in power fear the most is that the everyday working class people will come together. The, the, the guy and girl who's a teacher, who's a fireman, who's a policeman, who fixes transmissions, who is a boat mechanic, who is a painter, 
a common laborer, as they say. There's nothing common about labor. That's a dignified job, working and earning a living. But they fear the most is that we will come together and say, why are you giving us the shaft, guys? We're going to stand together against the ruling elite. That's what they fear the most. And all of these things that I'm talking about are simply ways that they can divide us up and keep us fighting. And they'll keep picking our stinking pockets. That's where I'm coming from. I think we need to figure out how we, look, they know how to work together. Well, why can't we figure out how to work together and stop fighting about everything? Because I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, and I sit on the bleachers and watch the game. I'm not a participant. You know what? Because you know what I realize? Democrat and Republican, it's team sports. It's not about right or wrong or good or bad. If if you're a Democrat and somebody in your party could have murdered, beaten, and and raped an 87-year-old heart patient in a wheelchair— if the Republicans yeah. say it's wrong, then you got to defend them. If a Republican does something that you don't like, whatever it is, how you got to all join him because it's about bringing the party together and attacking your enemies and defending your side. It's team sports. I don't play team sports. Justice is justice. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. It's team sports. Empires fall. They do two things. They get involved in a in a lot of um, military conflicts that are, that they can't handle. And as an empire falls, the leaders get more and more absurd and preposterous and ludicrous. Look at the last two: Trump and Biden. Trump ludicrous. Biden absurd. I mean, I, I watched this guy. He ain't right. There's something wrong with the dude. I mean, look, it, and they're like, there's something wrong with his age. Well, don't talk about his age. It ain't age. I know of a person who's in their 80s that's still practicing law and very, very well. Has nothing to do with his age. The dude has some kind of mental issues, some kind of whatever, okay, something ain't working right up there. Fine. And he's the, it's preposterous that we have to pretend that Joe Biden comes out mumbling and stumbling, tripping and fall down, wandering around aimlessly around the stage, can't find his way off the stage, saying, God praise the queen, or God only knows what else this man is going to say from week to week. And we have to pretend like he is a, like he knows what's going on. We have to pretend like there's nothing wrong. Again, we, the leaders are getting more and more preposterous. We get to Trump from Trump, who is basically a worldwide wrestling federation figure. I mean, he'd be great on WWIF. To a guy who doesn't even know what day it is. It's preposterous. And coming up next on Arts Express actor, writer, show creator, and something called Moonlighting DJ. Among his many mysterious hats, Diala Riddle is our guest to describe exactly what his latest venture called One Song from Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Network with musicologist partner in crime Blake Robin is all about. Riddle also talks about the strikes against Hollywood East and West just before the writer's strike was settled and the actor's strike continues. Among the shows Riddle has written and starred in include Brothers in Atlanta, The Last OG, Blackish, and South Side. And here are some scenes from South Side, described as friends in down-and-out Chicago aiming to take over the world, but currently stuck in low-wage dead-end lives. Then we'll hear from Riddle and with his one-song collaborator, Blake Robin, somewhere in the background off mic. Life has dealt me some cards, but with this, I'm about to play a royal flush. We're about to be venture capitalists mm-hmm. on the south side. Adventure capitalists? Venture capitalists? Our way is better because we've taken people's money on an adventure. That's a nice little hustle. Dude, he's selling popcorn. Get your tongue out of his butt. I damn, I diggity dodge the chair while wiggly wiggly loading up the cup bag. We got popcorn for a dollar. Extra up for some butter. All right, all right, everybody, settle down. Stacy, please stop popping that gum. Bruh, I'm going to need you to either pick that afro all the way out or pat it all the way down. I don't want to see it in the middle, okay? That's a zaddy right there. He is too cute. Excuse me, sir. I'll be right with you, okay? I got to get mines, and I gotta go get this. Okay, officer, go get that. Let's do this with some cash. 
My name is Keisha. Yes, I went to Kenwood. Yes, I know Eddie Curry. We used to go together. Yes, I have a son. He is an elite basketball player. Okay. See, I see in your paperwork you have another son. Yeah, he likes science. I want to look for blood. Directions back home. I went look of a night. Your dad's gonna get a real good job, and he's gonna bring all of you together in a big fancy house. Yeah! No, no more khakis on this block. Man. I don't trust niggas in khakis. Write that down, Bruto. Word is out. You got no respect for the law, do you? I don't. I really don't. You got me. Okay, good. Hey, yeah, you're a very cavalier person. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you very much. Cavalier oh, way. It's a beautiful day. South side. I, I was going on the south side. South side. South side. South side. God is good. Somebody told me I was going to get a blessing this week. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you say a little about the many things you're up to? <laughs> and in time. Uh, I am a writer an actor, director, which means that I'm on strike all the time now. <laughs> and I can't tell you about most of the stuff that I work on, but oh. it's all on the internet, I, as much as I've tried to spread it. Um, but I've also been a DJ and just a, a person who dives deeply into music for a long time after many friendships with people from, you know, Questlove to Jimmy Fallon. I've always, always, you know, really enjoyed talking to other music nerds about music. And that's when I met Luxury. And please share a sample song coverage from your one song collaboration with Blake. Well, you know, one song that we've covered is uh, Amy Winehouse's Rehab. Um, and as we do on every episode of One Song, you know, One Song exists. You know, we, we break down one song and we tell you how it was recorded, when it was recorded, what was going on in the world who was involved with the recording, what music influenced it, and what music it influenced. So in the case of Amy Winehouse, like we talk about the career that she had before rehab, uh, when she was considered more of a neo-soul singer and was working with different producers. And then we walk the listener into, kind of into the environment where she, you know, is working with Mark Ronson on this album that's going to break her huge in the world. And along the way, we play for our listeners the stem. And are you involved in the current Hollywood strikes? And any thoughts about the strikes to share? Um, you know, yes. So yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, as both a writer, uh, as a member of the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, uh, yeah, I, I am currently out on the pickets, you know, several times a week. And, you know, we're just looking for something, you know, fair. Uh, you know, just recently there was an episode, there was a show that, really blew up big on Netflix from a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, those writers got very, very meager checks for the fact that this, you know, show is now getting all kinds of love on the on the streaming platform. So we're just looking for something that's fair. And um, hopefully the uh, organization that represents the studios and the streaming companies will come back to something fair because the strike is definitely hurting people. Nobody wants to be on strike, and we all want to get back to doing what we love. And working together, when you disagree about anything, who wins? Uh, luxury wins. He's, he's abusive. He's abusive. I, I think I can say that. No, I'm joking. Terrible. 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 I'm kidding. Here's the real answer. Here's the real answer. The real answer is that we, uh, we became friends through the pandemic, we were talking on the phone for hours before there was ever a podcast in the picture. And there is so much stuff that we find that we both love and so much overlap that it really hasn't been, I don't want to sugarcoat anything, but it really hasn't been an issue of like solving crises and arguments. It's been more like, okay, we love 30 things. What are the 10 that go into the next 10 episodes? That's, that's really been the process up till now. And Diallo, what exactly is a moonlighting DJ? actually the oldest of the hats. It's an old hat. Uh, when I was in college, I, I, I had a hard time um, finding a term time job that I liked, but I saw that there was really only one DJ serving sort of like Boston's greater, uh, you know, the Boston area's colleges. 
And I was like, well, he's a really good DJ, so I see why he gets so much work, but maybe people will pay slightly less for a mediocre DJ. So when I started <laughs> off, I was literally I was literally just DJing for anybody who would pay for me. But, you know, like anything, I, I put in my 10,000 hours, so to speak, and eventually became a really good DJ. So that by the time I was a senior, I was actually the DJ that every and the other guy had graduated. <laughs> That's the cool thing about being a DJ in a college environment. There's such a thing as, you know, another DJ moving on with his life. Uh, by my senior year, I was like the, the DJ that people wanted to hire. And then when I moved out to L.A., I worked in showbiz, but I still DJed on the side. In fact, I met my wife DJing. Mm. And, uh, you know, DJing has always been something that's kept me very in touch and in tune with a lot of music. Because when you DJ a lot, you're going to move on from just the stuff that you're naturally exposed to and start learning about a wide array of everything from, like, post-punk New York, you know, sounds to, you know, Seattle grunge to, you know, underground hip-hop, backpack hip-hop of the 2000s. Like, pretty soon you just kind of know a little bit about everything. And these are weird people. Like, we have way too much music knowledge. And sometimes we have to find a, an avenue or a place to go somewhere and talk to one another about all the music that we're into. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now on the show, in the Poetry Corner, Mary Murphy of our Arts Express crew reads from the works of Mary Oliver. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I find that as the cold weather comes on and the world seems ever more bleak, I enjoy turning to the poetry of Mary Oliver. Her poems of disappointment, hope, and eventual learning from the natural world can get me through to the next day. Oliver, born in Ohio in 1935, was enamored of the natural world, celebrating birds, the sun, and country life in general. But every once in a while, her poems included actual human beings, and those, to me, are her most interesting poems. Here, then, is Arts Express favorite, actress Mary Murphy, voicing the selection of poems by Mary Oliver. The Sun. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun, every evening, relaxed and easy, floats toward the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone? And how it slides again out of the blackness, every morning, on the other side of the world, like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils. Say, on a morning in early summer, at its perfect imperial distance, and have you ever felt for anything such wild love do you think there is anywhere, in any language, a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there, empty-handed? Or have you, too, turned from this world? Or have you, too, gone crazy for power, for things? When Death Comes When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness, and therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time 
as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, toward silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to pine myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. The Journey One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Wild Geese You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Stanley Kunitz I used to imagine him coming from his house, like Merlin, strolling with important gestures through the garden, where everything grows so thickly, where birds sing, little snakes lie on the boughs, thinking of nothing but their own good lives, where petals float upward, their colors exploding, and trees open their moist pages of thunder. It has happened every summer for years. 
But now I know more about the great wheel of growth and decay and rebirth and know my vision for a falsehood. Now I see him coming from the house. I see him on his knees, cutting away the diseased, the superfluous, coaxing the new. Know that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. Like the human child I am, I rush to imitate. I watch him as he bends among the leaves and vines to hook some weed or other. I think of him there, raking and trimming, stirring up those sheets of fire between the smothering weights of earth, the wild and shapeless air. You've been listening to Mary Murphy reading a selection of poems by poet Mary Oliver. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And next on Arts Express... Hi, this is the UK Des, and my name is Brett Gregory. This evening, we're going to explore Hollywood's up-and-down relationship with party politics over the years, while also focusing on one of the industry's great creative firebrands, Oliver Stone. Hello, my name is Ian Scott, and I'm Professor of American Film and History at Manchester University in the UK. My research specialisms are in Hollywood movies, the relationship between cinema and American political culture more widely, and the social, cultural and political history of California. So what was the catalyst that got you first into Hollywood and politics? The relationship of politics to movies has always intrigued me, uh, and my own tastes had gravitated towards what were broadly termed political films a long, long while ago. Movies like Mr Smith Goes to Washington, All the President's Men and JFK. But really, it all came together when I was a grad student studying California politics. I was interested in why people who'd never stood for office before would try to win election races at a very high level first time out, principally getting elected to Congress, in other words. The political scientist David Cannon wrote a really influential book for me and for my research at the time, and it was called Actors, Athletes and Astronauts. And in it, Cannon claimed there was mounting evidence that these were the routes to high office. In other words people from the entertainment industry, sports stars, or people who'd done heroic acts of daring do. I applied Cannon's theory to my own research, looking at candidates in California during the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s who wanted to run for the House of Representatives, the Federal House of Representatives. And before I knew it, I was implicitly predicting the rise of Arnold Schwarzenegger to the governorship of California. And this relationship between party politics and Hollywood, when did it first take hold, really? I suppose I'd make the claim that politics and the movies have always been inextricably linked. But really, it was the 1930s, the Depression, that put that relationship into sharp relief. The Hollywood studios, as they were growing in stature and influence through the 20s, were always perceived as conservative, at least at the top, among the moguls. And those moguls who came west were interested in developing an archetypal American persona. So many were Republicans, and they imposed a pretty rigid conservative line in the studios. And remember, at this time, studio workers were beginning to unionise as we start to get into the 1930s. The moguls thought these were all going to make Hollywood a hotbed of left-wing politics and agitation. And that did happen. It's often forgotten that the 30s really were a period of deep unrest in and around the film industry. Quite a lot of strikes, quite a lot of agitation going on. And to some degree, it made the moguls even more conservative. The difference really was the election of Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. That began to change things. First of all, Roosevelt was a Democrat. And there hadn't been one of those in the White House for 12 years. So really, that was going back 
to the beginning of Hollywood's infancy, really. So they weren't quite the force on the national stage. They were by the early 1930s. And second, FDR understood that from the off, if he wanted to communicate his New Deal policies to the wider population, he had to be both a broadcasting star himself, so he created his famous fireside chats, as you know, his weekly radio broadcast to the nation, and he needed to cultivate a relationship with Hollywood that would sell, however implicitly, the idea of economic and social regeneration in America. And how did World War II affect Hollywood's output? The war maintained that political connection, and of course Hollywood was deeply involved in propaganda for the military by way of organisations like the Office of War Information. After the war, the Cold War provided impetus for topics, and at the same time, the prevalence of film noir as a genre provided an aesthetic base for Hollywood to continue to make films with a social and cultural agenda to them, if not an outright political ideology. So you've got post-war movies like The Best Years of Our Lives that contemplated the nation's priorities after the war, films like Frank Capra's largely underrated State of the Union with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, Robert Rosson's All the King's Men, and then a little bit later A Face in the Crowd, directed by Elia Kazan. All of these made an impression in the late 40s and turn of the 50s. But of course, the coming and growing anti-communist force during that era distracted Hollywood as well, and it scared off filmmakers and the studios for much further inquiry and investigation. Fascinating. And what followed in the 60s and 70s? So by the time we get to the 1960s and 1970s, you have a different kind of force at work. Different kind of agenda is emerging. Conspiracy and paranoia thrillers like the classic Manchurian Candidate from 1962. And then in the later decade, The Parallax View with Warren Beatty and Three Days of the Condor with Robert Redford all suggested an American political landscape dominated by shady cabals and big corporations unaccountable to anyone. And these films began to tap into the mood of disillusionment with politics that had finally come to fruition with the Watergate scandal in the midst of the Nixon administration in the early 1970s. Indeed, I literally forced Jack Clark, who I work with, who's 25, to watch all the president's men last night, so he was aware of 70s paranoia. Anyway, please continue. Hollywood generally was always suspicious enough of someone like Ronald Reagan, who was an insider, of course, not to trust him entirely. Reagan had previously been a New Deal Democrat who turned over to the Republican Party and became governor of California in the 1960s before he became president. The Clinton era followed a pattern established by John F. Kennedy that Hollywood was to be cultivated and money should be sought, endorsements gathered, that kind of thing. And it was very successful for Clinton during the 1990s. By the time of the George Bush administration in the 2000s, Bush largely eschewed Hollywood. He didn't feel it was the kind of community that was very sympathetic, probably rightly, to some of his politics. Although in the immediate post-9-11 era, there was an unlikely alliance between the administration and the Hollywood studios and some of the unions like the Screenwriters Guild that tacitly supported the war on terror in the backdrop to 9-11. The Obama years bought uh, in endorsements, even from those who'd resisted political involvement, so big celebrities, musical stars like Bruce Springsteen, who'd been very loath to support and come out publicly for candidates in the past, came forward for somebody like Obama, who it was thought was really going to change not just American politics, but really the whole of American life and American society at that time. The Trump years followed, of course, and that was quite some reaction, as, as you know. And in many ways, the Trump years have been a masterclass in someone saying how much they're personally loved and how they're admired only for such communities, and Hollywood has been most particularly vocal in this, only for communities to refute that claim entirely about Trump in many ways. And in what ways have films affected government policy rather than vice versa? The wider political landscape has seen the exposure of things like American nuclear policy, for example, 
in a movie like The China Syndrome in the late 1970s starring Jane Fonda, a film that appeared around the time of the near-nuclear meltdown disaster at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. But perhaps one of the most obvious examples of influence is, of course, Oliver Stone's JFK from 1991, a film that was had such traction beyond the pages of review sections of the magazines and newspapers that it eventually resulted in the US Congress passing what is known as the Assassination Records Collection Act, which set up a review board that over the past 30 years or so has released millions of pages of previously redacted material. JFK caused such a storm over the official story of Kennedy's assassination in 1963 that the American Congress quietly realised it was actually the custodian of a history that frankly few accepted anymore, if they ever had. And Stone, who gave testimony to Congress himself, was well aware of the impact that his film was having and the influence it was having over people's public perception that the Warren Commission report of 1964, intimating that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin who had killed Kennedy, was simply not believed by the wider American populace. And you uh, interviewed Oliver Stone. That must have been something. I did find Stone absolutely fascinating uh, to interview. And subsequently, I began to learn a lot more about what motivated him and understand in the years after I'd interviewed him, which was around about 2012, 2013, I began to understand a great deal more about what it was he was telling me at the time, particularly when I reviewed his first book of memoirs a couple of years ago, Chasing the Light. In a way, Stone encapsulates some of those contradictory impulses in Hollywood. He very much wanted to tell his own stories when he came to Hollywood, and it just so happened that those stories and the history that he was a part of and growing up in during the 1960s and 1970s was really a time of fraction and disjuncture and a very kind of conflictual time for the United States and for American history more generally. Stone understood the great opportunities and principles that were at the heart of the American ideal, but he also understood well the terrible costs that were paid for some of those principles, notably in Vietnam, where Stone served with distinction and then made later three very different films about the conflict. But at the same time, you know, he's kind of an establishment figure. He understands Hollywood's an industry and he works within its confines for good and for ill. I'll tell you, when I asked who he most admired in American cinema, thinking that I had a list in my head of uh, the kind of names he would go to, he straight away said Steven Spielberg, not the filmmaker you might automatically assume to be somebody Stone would think of as a real inspiration. But the point was that Stone admired Spielberg's freedom within the system, the ability to make films on his terms. Stone might not have made a film like Lincoln, the way Spielberg did, or The Post or Bridge of Spies or more, all subject matter, you could see Stone being attracted to. But I think he just admires Spielberg's craft and his determination not to be swayed by fads and taste to do what he wants. That, for so many, for so many political filmmakers indeed, is an enormous attraction. The freedom to be able to dictate your own projects and mould them to your vision, however collaborative that vision might seem. So I think Stone would tell you he managed longevity and he managed to kind of mould his political vision because he made films on time and to budget. And certainly he delivered a run of movies from Salvador in the mid-1980s all the way through to probably Natural Born Killers a decade later that were commercial but were also critically challenging movies that audiences wanted to see and which, in Stone's case, tapped into a zeitgeist that few filmmakers can ever achieve. But with movies like Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, and even Nixon, as well as Natural Born Killers, Stone had a run of films that did all of that and more. He understood about maintaining relations with the studios, even though he didn't always agree with them by any means, but that's why he's managed to mould such a long-standing career for himself. A compelling character indeed, 
Many thanks for your time, Ian. It's been great. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express, and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. John Savage. If you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Prairie Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. on Arts Express. I don't want to pin you down. Uh, yes, I do. We'll go out now with a new episode of the Nine Minute Nietzsche and where we last left off as Peter Wise and Keegan Jelson face off down at the Red Star Cafe, grappling with the confounding mind of the elusive philosopher. Philosophy as I have so far understood and lived it, means living voluntarily among ice and high mountains, seeking out everything strange and questionable in existence, everything so far placed under a ban by morality. The ice is near, the solitude tremendous, but how serenely all things lie in the light. How freely one breathes, how much one feels, lies beneath oneself. So he was looking for scientific basis for this in physics, you, you mentioned. Um, how, how, did anybody actually support this as a scientist in, in the day? Well, actually, his, his notes weren't just, uh, published for uh, quite a while after his death, correct? Yeah, well, initially they, they first see the light of day in the Will to Power volume, which is put oh, together okay. by his sister and uh, Peter Gast, who was Nietzsche's friend. And Carl Schlechter, the head of the Nietzsche archive, eventually did confront Elizabeth Nietzsche over the fact that she was fabricating notes and um, mm -hmm. uh, fabricating letters of Nietzsche's. And, you know, as is widely known, she's somewhat of an infamous figure because she's sort of like a proto-Nazi. Yeah. Um, and so she tried to present, she took a bunch of Nietzsche's notes and tried to present them in a certain way as a magnum opus. Now, Walter Kaufman, who's the sort of preeminent translator of Nietzsche into English, he nevertheless publishes this, an English translation of Will to Power. And what he points out is that we have gone through and verified they are genuine notes in this volume, in the volume that, at least as he presents it. It's just the collection itself the overall structure of it is not the organization. Exactly, uh, yeah, I've heard that. Right, it's not it's not as it was presented. But if you just use it as a reference book for Nietzsche's notes, and there's actually quite a few that have not been published in English, mm -hmm. uh, or that don't appear in that volume, it's just it's called the Nachlass, which I forget the exact meaning, but it's sort of like the leftovers, right? Uh, right. And right, right. in that Nachlass, we have, I mean, Nietzsche puts forward radical theories of time. Uh, he's very interested in the work of this physicist and philosopher of science, Boscovich, mm -hmm. who is a... Croatian. Uh, Croatian. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, basically, Boscovich, in a way, was against corpuscular material atomism, right? That basically the idea that we have some sort of substance, indivisible substance at the base of reality. He wanted to instead explain all material phenomena in terms of forces and thought mm -hmm. that he could create an equation to explain how different forces express or manifest themselves at different, uh, we could say, tempos or distances. Mm -hmm. 
Um, a, a lot of it is above my head, but what the important thing is that what Nietzsche was exploring were was really influenced by neo-Kantians. A lot of people don't talk about this, but Nietzsche was a neo-Kantian at the beginning of his career. Mm-hmm. The neo-Kantians, a positive, their funda- well, so their their fundamental attitude or orientation toward the sciences is that in the wake of Kant mm-hmm. and this idea that our senses are not reality as such, we have to approach the sciences from this perspective that we are only seeing the world as phenomena, so to mm-hmm. speak. And so they did a lot of really interesting experiments and thought experiments considering how the sense organs of different organisms would perceive reality in different ways mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And so Nietzsche is approaching the natural world from this same perspective at the beginning of his career, from this neo-Kantian perspective of this sort of separation of, of being epistemically human humble, we might say, right, being epistemically right. humble, uh, and not just wanting to reduce everything to atomistic materialism, sort of thinking about, really going back in a way to the attitude of the pre-Socratic philosophers, like Heraclitus, natural philosophers, right. yeah, yeah, Heraclitus, uh, people who tried to come to a series of first principles, mm-hmm. uh, metaphysics, right, to approach nature. Before, with without any of the prior uh, presuppositions that we might have now after centuries of accumulated knowledge, in a way Nietzsche is trying to go back to, to that, and that's I think why, in his view, something like eternal return might not be so outlandish. Right. That, now, uh, now, let me. Can I interrupt for a sec? Um, sure. I, I don't want to pin you down. Well, yes, I do actually. What do you think of? Uh, Given your knowledge of, of science, which I think is probably formidable, but you don't, you won't admit it. Uh, you're familiar with quantum physics and all that sort of thing. Uh, how does that hold together for you? How do you conceive as to what he was trying to say and how much he actually uh, believed in what he was saying when it wasn't supported by science at that time? But is it could it be supported by science at this time? I think that it. The short answer is no. I don't think it could be supported by science at this time in terms of actually proving something in laboratory conditions. Mm-hmm. But I would say that in terms of a lot of theories that have caught on recently, like string theory and brain theory, things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, string theories, uh, you know, I, I know there's mixed opinions on it, but mm-hmm. that really took the scientific world by storm, and there was no experiment you could do to demonstrate that. In a way, it's, it is almost metaphysical, some theoretical yeah. physics. And I don't think you could ever... So George George Simmel has famously refuted Nietzsche on this point that, you know, if you try to prove eternal recurrence on the basis that it all matter in whatever form or iteration, configuration, right? All the matter in the universe right now is in a certain configuration, we could say. Mm -hmm. And that uh, given an infinite amount of time, this is one of the avenues Nietzsche pursues in his notebooks, Mm -hmm. you could imagine that those configurations, every possible configuration of matter will be reached, but it'll also be reached an infinite number of times, Mm -hmm. and every sequence of every, every possible sequence of all those configurations will be reached an infinite number of times, which would mean every life as it is lived will be lived exactly so Uh an infinite number of times. The problem with this, I, I think even in Nietzsche's thought, that kind of bothers me is that that wouldn't be you in any like real subjective sense right because it's a totality right you know if like if if another universe if our universe dies and this leads to the uh, or collapses in on itself and there's another big banger whatever the cycles of the universe might be right in this hypothetical model and some new universe arises where there is somebody exactly like me living a life that is exactly like mine it's still just a duplicate instance it's not actually me having the same subjective experience again. oh i see what you're saying it's, yeah so so it's right it's sort of so that doesn't it, it has a goal in other words which he he was not goal oriented he didn't believe in in purpose right so um right i i but it, there is a way i think again metaphysically uh where you could approach eternal return as the sort of the consequence of some theories such as in brain theory, right? That um, time as we experience it is a relative thing. Mm -hmm. And that viewed from say outside of our universe from like a fourth dimensional perspective, all of time would be a sort of 
never-ending constant totality of all moments or something like that. Yeah. Right, so you'd be unaware of the eternal return, unless you happen to read Nietzsche, right? I mean, really, the <laughs> <Yeah>. question... <laughs> good one. The, the, the question, then, is, is whether that's a good thing or not. Nietzsche, this is why I think it's actually important to talk about the idea of it being a possible scientific theory to Nietzsche, even if it can't po- quite work, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason is because the real importance of that question is how you answer it. Because we actually can't... What we're asking questions about now... Uh, in this course of this inquiry, you, you and I inquiry that you and I are having is about the true world, the noumenal world, mm-hmm. the world beyond human perception. Like, what is the true nature of time and existence and all this, independent of our perception of it? And we can't know that. And so, in a way, by posing this question to us, Nietzsche is always going to pull out of you something that says more about you than about the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we, how you feel about the life that you've lived. So that's what he, there's, it's the way that he talks about free will as well. There will never be a settled debate on free will. And so in a way, uh, and if we were to have free will, it would be impossible to prove because it's like proving a negative in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so whether you believe in free will or not is sort of revealing psychologically about you. Right, because it's an unsettled debate. Same thing with eternal return. Mm-hmm. And so he writes in his notebooks because he wants this to be the way of mankind overcoming itself, right? Of yes. people uh, sublating, the human race sublating what it once was and moving on to something better. Moving past this age uh, that we're in currently into an age that values the real and immediate world, right? The, the world as it appears. We might say the apparent world. Mm-hmm. And to get people to value that, or to as a test of whether or not you value that, he poses eternal return. Mm-hmm. And he says in his notes, such a question could enliven the strong, but paralyze and break the world weary. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.